Hello, and welcome back to the HSAC Podcast. For those of you that don't know, we're the Harvard College Sports Analytics Collective, a group of undergraduate students dedicated to the quantitative and statistical analysis of sports. We break down the numbers and advanced metrics behind all your favorite teams and players, trying to bring useful insights to the game. I'm David Arco, a freshman at Harvard College, and today I am very lucky to be joined by our first HSAC alumni guest and director of baseball analytics for the New York Mets, Ben Zosmer. Ben graduated from Harvard in 2015 with a degree in applied mathematics focusing in government. In high school, he interned with his hometown, Philadelphia Phillies, and also worked for Baseball Reference. At Harvard, he was also the announcer for various sports for the student radio. Upon graduating, Ben was hired by the Los Angeles Dodgers as a baseball operations analyst and was with the Dodgers for the past six seasons in which they won the NL West every year and made it to the World Series three times and obviously won last year in the 2020 World Series ending their drought since 1988. In the offseason, Ben was hired by the New York Mets to become their director of baseball analytics. Off the field, Ben also predicts the Academy Awards every year with his own personal model that he developed. He published a book all about it in Oscar Metrics, The Math Behind the Biggest Night in Hollywood, and also publishes his annual predictions in The Hollywood Reporter. You can find Ben's book on Amazon and follow him on Twitter at Ben's Oscar Math. So thanks for joining me today, Ben. I know, you know, this is probably one of the busiest times in your life with the start of a new season, the start of a new job, and also Oscar Sunday this weekend. The night that we're recording this episode, the Mets are actually playing your hometown, Philadelphia Phillies. So, you know, that kind of is a nice segue to just get into my first question. So what was it that inspired you to go into a career in sports analytics? Was it always something that you knew you wanted to do? Or was it a potential career option out of many others that you were considering? Uh, Well, first of all, thanks so much for having me. It's very fun to be on the podcast. For me, it's very cliche to say in baseball that your journey in this profession began when you read Moneyball as a kid. But the fact of the matter is, for me, it began when I read Moneyball as a kid. I mean, that's just the truth, as cliche as it may sound. I was in fifth grade at the time. My dad and I both read the book. And immediately, it was so obvious to me as somebody who liked numbers. Math was my favorite subject. I was a big baseball fan that this would be such a fun profession. And so it was something that I always had in the back of my mind as one option as I was growing up. And then I was very fortunate that I was able to find a job in it after college. The book Moneyball is very inspiring to a lot of people. And obviously you had an analytics background and there's two ways I think people come at it. Either you're interested in sports and then you want to do something with analytics or you're interested in analytics and math and you come to sports that way. Following up on that, I guess, was it always baseball for you? Was baseball always the sport or was, were you open to working in different sports? Baseball was always my number one. So I always knew that if I were lucky enough to get a job in baseball, that that's where I would go. I did look around at other sports. You know, you never know if you're going to get a job opportunity or not. And so looking at different things during my senior year of college, but once I got an offer from a baseball team, that was the answer for me. Yeah. I mean, you can't turn that down. And I mentioned in the intro that you worked for the Phillies and baseball reference in high school. And nowadays, I don't know of anyone that would get that kind of opportunity to work for a baseball team or any sports team in high school. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that experience and kind of what you did in those two jobs. So I got very lucky with the Phillies opening that they had a program every year for 12 high school students in the local Philadelphia area to come on as interns. And so it was specifically geared towards that, which made it much more doable. This was before the 
analytics or R&D days, at least at the Phillies. This was the summer of 2011, and it coincided nicely with my high school having a program where seniors could leave a few weeks early before the end of the year and work with some company, any company that they could find for a few weeks at the end of that final semester of high school. And so I was lucky that I was able to join in that role. Primarily, it was just working in general baseball operations. So a lot of unstapling old contracts so that they could be scanned into the computer. That was our primary task. And it was fascinating. Got to read through these contracts going back to the 1800s. And we had MLB network on in the background and got to keep up with the Phillies and other games. The baseball reference internship, that was my other baseball experience. That was in college. By that point, I had a bit of coding background, which was extremely helpful for that job. Conveniently for me, they're also located in Philadelphia. Uh, So I had a wonderful summer there, got to do some coding projects for them while still being in in the Philly area. And I've still kept in touch with Sean Foreman, who's the head of BaseballReference.com. He's a great guy uh, who gave me that opportunity. And that was also a really wonderful experience for me to confirm my interest in working somewhere in the realm of baseball and analytics. For these jobs, did you find that, that you learned a lot in these positions or you had to come in with background and kind of apply that, what you had already learned? Some of both, but definitely a lot of emphasis on the learning a lot part of the question. I've said on more than one occasion that I felt like the Dodgers were my grad school in many ways. I did not attend grad school. And so being able to go there and learn a lot about baseball, learn a lot about statistics from some really, really smart people on both sides, some great baseball minds, some great statistics minds who were there, who in my six seasons with the Dodgers, I was able to learn an enormous amount from. So I feel very lucky that I got that opportunity, got to meet all those people. Certainly something I've thought a lot about now that I'm with the Mets, about trying to create a place where as we bring in really smart people from the baseball side, they can learn more from the statistics folks or really smart people on the statistics side can learn more from the baseball folks. And that it's a very collaborative environment where everyone feels like they're not just contributing their own part, but hopefully getting something from all their colleagues. We talked about the in-organization, but I think analytics are becoming more and more part of the mainstream, even for fans too. They're starting to you know, throw out this term analytics, but sometimes people don't really know what it means or they use it. People think of it differently. If you could give one kind of simple and universal definition for what analytics is as it relates to sports, for kind of when fans think about analytics, this is what they should think about when thinking about what analytics is. It's a great question. To me, analytics, what's the right definition of analytics? Analytics is trying to use data to answer questions about the sport as intelligently as possible. And I would generally divide that into two categories of metrics that one could create, which would be descriptive and predictive. So backwards looking and forwards looking. The parts of analytics are looking back and trying to best assess the true value of something. So one really classic example might be something like war, uh, which is a a metric that gets thrown around a lot in a number of different sports. So war, meaning wins above replacement, uh, is one way of saying, what's this player's total contribution to his team? Could be baseball, basketball, football, hockey, whatever it is. How many wins did he contribute beyond a replacement player? A player that a team could get without expending much in the way of cost. And that's a backwards looking metric. That's a way of saying, okay, let's take all the data we have and figure out what's the best, most accurate way of assessing what this player was. The other category would be a predictive metric, predictive analytics. This is forwards looking. So A great example is you think back to Moneyball, let's take all the data we have on this player and take our best guess as to what he will look like next year. That's pretty different from war. That's 
trying to predict the future. There's the old joke that predictions are hard, especially about the future. Uh, and, and it's true. That's sort of what analytics is to me. It's taking all this data we have and answering questions either about accurately modeling the past or accurately estimating the future. I just thought of this, so this might come out a little bit verbose or whatever, but it's kind of like history a little bit. So you study, you're studying the past using metrics from the past to then assess the future and make these more predictive metrics. You can't really do either of the two exclusively. You need those past metrics to create your models and your predictions for the future. Neither of them are exclusive. They kind of work together. But I guess more of what you do in baseball analytics and with the Mets, would you say it's more on the descriptive side or the predictive side of analytics? More on the predictive side. That's generally the most bread and butter type of sports analytics, if you will, because that's always the million dollar question. What's going to happen next? Or the way that statisticians tend to think of it, it's what are the odds that this happens? What are the odds that this happens? You know, we tend to think about things very probabilistically and not so much in black and white, this will happen or this won't happen. But yeah, I'd say the vast majority of what we do, what any team would tend to do would be trying to look towards the future and using the data we have from the past to predict that future. I definitely agree with that. We're not trying to figure out David Wright's career war, things like that. We're trying to figure out what Lindor's war is going to be the future to figure out how much we're going to pay him, things like that. But they do work in harmony together. You do need the past to inform the future, keeping it focused on kind of the fans' perception of analytics. So also sometimes like more traditional fans, you'll see this with you know an older audience, they like to rag on the analytics community. For example, last year in the World Series, they pulled Blake Snell in the sixth inning, because that's what conventional analytics might have said. Pulling a pitcher third time through the order makes sense. Obviously, you came out on the right end of that decision as you were <laughs> with the Dodgers then, and then won the World Series. Not specifically focusing on the Blake Snell decision, but more broadly, what would you say is the most biggest and the most unfair knock on the analytics community? So I think a lot of times people who are naturally inclined towards being pro-analytics, whatever that means, or anti-analytics, whatever that means, tend to ascribe all decisions that work out or don't work out in the camp that they want to. What I mean by that is people who generally are more pro-analytics, when a team makes a move in the offseason, they sign a player and it works out well, they say, yeah, that's where analytics really had its impact. And then vice versa, you know, you bring up the Snell decision, but when a team makes you know, a, a relief decision or a pinch hitting decision and it doesn't work out well, and someone who's anti-analytics, you know, is likely to say, yeah, you know, that, that's why analytics are ruining baseball. And I think that that is not as nuanced a view as reflects reality. Maybe that's what it was in the day that Moneyball was written close to 20 years ago. I don't know. I was in elementary school. I wasn't working in baseball at the time. But my experience has always been just a lot more collaborative than that. I can't really think of that many decisions that I would say are 100% analytics and 0% more traditional scouting, coaching, feel, et cetera, or 0% analytics and 100% more traditional. Everybody these days is using data and everybody these days is trying to blend it in with these more traditional forms of baseball decision-making. And so it's really hard with any decision to pin either the credit or the blame on just analytics. Definitely agree with that response. People tend to you know, weight it too much. Analytics is everything. It's nothing. It's kind of more of like an equilibrium. I don't know if you can't put a number on it or something. I mean, I'm curious, actually, I don't know if you'd be able to answer that or you, or you can answer that. Yeah. It's hard. It's a great question. I mean, it, the problem with answering it is that it can be very, very different even within 
different aspects of the game. You take the example of evaluating a high school player for the draft. And this could be a high school player who's going in the first round. Even then, it's very hard in terms of like traditional analytics to have nearly as much to say about that player as you would from an analytical perspective, a college player. And you know less about college players than you do minor leaguers. And you know less about minor leaguers than you do major leaguers, just due to the availability and the quality of data. And so I do think that for different decisions, whatever that correct percentage is, can be fairly different. And I think this is also not speaking in percentages, but for the four major American sports leagues, NBA, NHL, MLB, and NFL, how would you rank them in terms of which one uses analytics the most, which one's the least? So admittedly, I have uh, an outsider's perspective on three of the four, having never worked in basketball, football, or hockey. My perception would be that baseball is probably out in front for a couple of reasons. One is there's a bit of a head start. The baseball started in the analytics realm a little bit earlier than some of these other sports. And so that certainly helps. And the other is just due to the nature of the game. Football, basketball, hockey are so much about these real-time in-motion interactions between players. And that's just a lot harder to model than very isolated individualistic type sports like baseball really is, where you can isolate the effect of the batter or the pitcher. You know, you compare that to hockey where some guy getting open who's nowhere near the puck could be the single most important player in motion on that play. So I would say baseball is probably out in front. Hockey's probably on the other end. I would probably say basketball maybe is a little closer to baseball and football maybe comes in third, but I hesitate on the ranking. I think to properly analyze a sport where you've got a dozen guys running around uh, in fast motion, you really need player tracking technology, which is technology that didn't really exist and you know got installed in a number of these arenas or fields uh, until just the last few years. This is very new stuff. And then you need enough data to actually start building models. And then you need to get buy-in on those models and you know coaches need to be able to trust them. And so that's a big reason for the head start that baseball got is that Yes, player tracking technology can be very helpful, but there's a lot of really impressive stuff that Bill James and the rest of that group were able to do even without it. And also kind of going back to the Blake Snell and analytics example, people ragging analytics a little bit, since you especially work in a front office, how do you deal with a situation in which the analytics are wrong? Say you wanted to suggest a certain strategy or choose who to pitch on a certain day or something like that, and it just didn't, it didn't work out that day. How do you then deal with that if you know coaches or players or other people in the front office are looking at you and saying, hey, Ben, you told us to do this. It didn't work out. How do you kind of then deal with that? Yeah, that is part of the job. And I think that the best that analysts can do is on the front end, being very humble about what we know and don't know, that instead of presenting things as definite, absolute facts, it's much better to present things in terms of probabilities. And that's not to say that that's a complete cover, it's almost a cop out to say, well, we're never wrong because we said that had a 0.01% chance of happening. I don't mean it to that extreme, but at least if you're always humble in what you present, then most reasonable people will understand that 70% means 70% and therefore you'll be wrong 30% of the time. And that's just due to the nature of how statistics works. But that's not to say that from time to time, there won't be people that are upset at the results of a model and you know what it recommends. I just try as much as I can to focus on the process over the results. If you have the right process and you you set yourself up in the best spot to win and then a guy strikes out, that happens. That's baseball. You can't guarantee success just because you had the right hitter up to the plate at the right time. Everybody strikes out. So from there, the 
chips fall where they may. Yeah, now kind of getting into your role a little bit with the Dodgers, what exactly does a person in an analytics front office do? Obviously, there are different roles within a front office, but generally, I guess, what did you do specifically? What was your role like with the Dodgers? So I had a couple of different roles with LA. For my first four seasons there, I was more in the traditional analyst mold, sort of what you think of when you think of Moneyball. It's using data, using statistics to try to help answer questions about baseball, sometimes relating to on-field things, sometimes relating to off-field things. Then I transitioned over for my last couple seasons. I was in a group that we called Baseball Ops, which was a smaller group that was specifically focused on the major league strategy side of analytics. And so a lot of it was reporting things to the coaches, reporting things and recommending things to the GM and the rest of his staff at the executive level. So getting to you know, be a bit more involved on those sides and be a bit of a bridge between that group and the analytics group that I had been a part of. Uh, and we have a similar setup here at the Mets. So we've got some people who are more coach and player facing and some people who are more data science facing. And then they all get together, at least by Zoom these days. Follow-up question of that is, like, is it a lot of research on the analysts within themselves kind of going out, we're trying to find some competitive edge, some competitive advantage? Is it coaches coming to you and saying, hey, they saw something on the field and they want you to look into it more deeply? Or is it even sometimes, are there instances where players come to you and want to have a question for you and want you to explore that? It's actually all of the above. We'll get requests on projects from the GM, from other department heads, from the major league side, so coaches, sometimes players, and then the analysts themselves will often be watching a game and be like, wait, we should really research that. I feel like in my time in baseball, I've seen it come from all over the place, which is good. I've always thought that if people stop asking questions about stuff to the analytics department, that means that they don't care what the analytics department has to say. So the questions are good. It adds to the to-do list, but we want to have a to-do list. We want to be able to build things and contribute things to the organization. This might be a tough question because it's hard to kind of explain how analytics appears on the field. But if fans are watching a game, other than the announcers saying, oh, this is an analytical decision, how can fans look to see how analytics is interacting in the game and maybe if a decision is analytical or not? How can they kind of see the analytics in the game? It is hard. And it's actually part of a broader point that I think can be frustrating. As someone who grew up as a fan who liked analytics, which is that so much of the baseball analytics sphere is now done behind closed doors, uh, which is a real shame for the average fan because all 30 teams now have some level of analytics staff and they're all working hard to do cool things behind the scenes. And because, you know, no one wants to reveal to their rival what they're up to, the Nationals or Braves or Phillies or Marlins don't want me to know what they're working on and then vice versa. And that's just how competitive sports are. It means that the average fan doesn't necessarily get to see what's going on on the analytics side. Now, there are some really, really good public resources, you know, fan graphs and hardball times and baseball savants and baseball reference, places like that, that do a really nice job of communicating a lot of this stuff to the fans in a way that unfortunately, those of us who work for teams really cannot due to not wanting our opponents to know. I, I would love if there were some world where I could magically talk about analytics to millions of Mets fans, but somehow the Nationals, Braves, Phillies, Marlins would never find out what I said. But unfortunately, it's not how it is. The baseball whistleblower. Right. like that. But yeah, so baseball, we talked about earlier, is one of the most advanced in terms of analytics. A lot has been done. And it feels like it's becoming not harder to contribute something new, but you need more and more of an advanced background. But what do you think is on the cutting edge of baseball analytics? It's a great question. 
you know, if I, if I knew for sure, then it probably wouldn't be very cutting edge because that would probably mean that people have already done it. There are certainly some ideas that we have for some of the data that we'd like to really get into and whether it's new data or old data, but that we can get into in interesting ways. I obviously, for similar reasons, can't get too into the weeds of what our to-do list is, but hopefully we'll be able to pretty soon start to not just reinvent the wheel, but really be able to innovate on some of this stuff. We talked about you know the fulfilling role of, of working in a front office and what kind of that entails. Kind of getting bigger picture here, what is your favorite part about being a part of a professional sports organization and working in a front office? Oh, there's a ton. I've really enjoyed every moment of it. I've got to work with some really decent, nice human beings, people that you love going to work with every day that are all striving together, working for the same goal. And there's a lot of real pinch me moments. I mean, I'm still a fan at heart. I think we all are. Getting to chat with players and coaches about baseball, you know, as someone like me who uh, was not even good at t-ball, let alone Little League, and being able to go into work every day at a baseball stadium is also a real pinch yourself moment for me. And granted, now it's all by Zoom and I'm not at a baseball stadium, but one day, fingers crossed, I will be again. You could look at it from the perspective of anytime you're doing a data science project, it's all the same. It's just inputs and outputs. I never look at it that way. To me, I do feel very fortunate that it gets to be in a specific domain that I find to be endlessly fascinating. You know, I got to attend a bunch of playoff games and even some World Series games and get to bring friends and family to Dodger Stadium and one day to City Field so that they can go to games and I can go visit them in the stands with a hot dog. And those are, are moments that, for me, will stick with me long after I've forgotten the details of any model we built. Yeah. I mean, we're getting a little philosophical here, but that's okay. We're an analytics podcast, so we also, you know, we also have emotions. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, like you talked about, sports is like an ultimate connector of all different people to kind of come together around a sport, different people from a city, from around the country. And you are part of that organization where you're contributing to the on-field product. You know, when the Dodgers won and they ended that World Series drought, and so many people were happy. I'm from LA, Sally, not a Dodgers fan, but all my friends, all the people I know, they're just so happy. Even during COVID, it took them away for whatever that time period was. Your work, it's not community service, but in a way it is. Your work extends beyond just your organization. It's going to all these millions of people and kind of bringing them joy. Yeah. Said it better than I did. I, I, uh, I, I love, that was perfect. Also, we just talked about the daughters. What are some of your favorite memories working with the Dodgers? Well, no doubt, first and foremost, has to be winning the World Series. And because that's just what we all strive for every day. And granted, it was on television for me, but still that nothing, nothing could top that. And later on, getting to take a picture with the trophy, there'll be a, a ring in the mail at some point, uh, you know, stuff like that. That's what it's all building up for. But uh, there were all sorts of things. Some, you know, just in the office with coworkers and hanging out there and some with getting to do the fantasy football league with the players was an amazing experience. Getting to travel with the team a few times, getting to be in the draft room, getting to go to spring training in Arizona. The list goes on. Uh, certainly getting to travel to Texas and to Boston for each of the World Series. Granted, they didn't go our way, but still a ton of fun. Yeah, I, uh, I feel very lucky with a huge number of great memories there. I've heard about this fantasy football story and I'm curious. Yeah, I think that's one of your most memorable stories if you want to talk a little bit more about that. Sure. Yeah. So uh, I ran the office fantasy football league, the one for myself and my colleagues. And then Brandon McDaniel, who was our 
head trainer and Justin Turner, our third baseman, heard about this and decided they wanted me to join them for their fantasy football efforts for the league that the players and a couple of the coaches are involved in. So I got to fly to Texas. So it was at Clayton Kershaw's house was the draft that year. Got to help him out with prepping for the draft and selecting players and, and all that. Unfortunately, the team was not able to reach that finish line, but still a very fun experience, you know, to work with them throughout the year on ads and drops and trades and all that. And just to get to be a part of things. But yeah, so now we're still going to keep it focused on analytics, but we're going to shift away from sports a little bit and move over to Oscars. Cause this is also something that you know, I talked about in the introduction, your Oscar analytics. And this is as opposed to baseball where so much has already been done, but this you're really a pioneer. Nobody has, nobody has done this. Nobody else has built kind of an Oscar model predicting the Oscars and things like that. So Similar to sports, where did your passion for Oscars and movies come from? I've always been a, a movie guy, an Oscars fan. Certainly growing up in a family that, you know, we would watch a bunch of the Oscar nominees and things like that. The idea of combining it with analytics, with, with data, that didn't really start until college. Freshman year of college, uh, I was at the Harvard IOP after some event there, some speaker, and uh, I was just sitting around on my laptop and being an Oscars fan, kind of wondered, oh, I wonder who's going to win the Oscars this year. And figured, well, someone must have built a model. But I couldn't find one when I went to Google. And so I just decided to do it myself. So it all kind of grew out of that back in 2011. Yeah, this sounds like a, you know, like a Shark Tank story. They find a product, <laughs> they look on the internet, and then they make it themselves. Also, could you briefly explain the model for our listeners? So when they look and see, oh, Ben's model predicts so-and-so best picture has a 30% chance winning, or this actor has a 20% chance of winning the award. Kind of how do you arrive at those probabilities, keeping it kind of a high level, but how does your model work? So the general premise, I guess, is that the best indicator of future behavior is past behavior, which in a year with a pandemic is a very debatable premise. So we'll see what happens with the predictions this year. But in general, I look through as much data as I can possibly find. And there's not much when it comes to the Oscars, but I look through everything I can get. And I figure out which things have been the most predictive of the Oscars in, in each category in past years. And that gives me a set of weights, how much to weight each of these different inputs. And then you can apply those weights to this year's nominees. And that will give you the, the probability that each of this year's nominees in each category goes on to win. So what are those inputs? What, what actually turns out to be predictive? Well, there are a number of different things, but far and away, the most important turns out to be these precursor award shows. Some of them are more famous. You think of the Golden Globes or the BAFTAs, which are like the British equivalent of the Oscars. Some of them are less famous, uh, but still very predictive. So the, all the different guild awards, the Directors Guild, Producers Guild, Screen Actors Guild, many for the different craft categories, all of these tend to be pretty predictive in each of their respective categories. And so those tend to be the biggest drivers of the model. And then there's a number of other things that are maybe less significant, but can help the nominee around the margins. So you plug in each year's data and the computer is then able to, with a little math, spit out the final percentage for each nominee. Yeah, that's really impressive because, I mean, casual people don't watch those other ceremonies. They just tune in for the Oscars and don't really have as good of an idea of what is the favorite, what is not, other than buzz or what they've been hearing from people. But this model is a great way to quantify that. I, something that you said kind of brought it back to what you said earlier about the descriptive and the predictive. So the prior Oscar stats and ceremony or prior other award ceremonies are the descriptive somewhat about a certain movie's performance. And you're using that to make a predictive stat about that movie's, how it's going to do with the Oscars. So it's kind of 
using both together. The interest of your model is in the predictive, but you need the descriptive in order to arrive at that answer. So that kind of is very similar to sports analytics. Which brings me to my next question is how are sports analytics and Oscar analytics related and how are they different? Uh, So how are they related is in what they're trying to do. They're both trying to use all the data that we have to give our best estimate of what will happen in the future. And they're also related in terms of how I approach them because so much of my job in both sports and this hobby and Oscar prediction comes down not just to making the most accurate predictions that I can, but also to presenting them in a way that is fun and engaging. So with the Oscars, that means I write articles and I run a Twitter account, you know, things like that, that are hopefully making this stuff a little more fun and enjoyable for people. And with baseball, that means communicating the findings of people in my department to coaches and staff and players and everybody else. Where are they different? There's a huge way that they're different. Uh, And that's in the sheer amount of data. We've got more data on a single pitch in baseball than we have on an entire year's worth of Oscars, because there's just so, so little to work with, all things considered. And that in and of itself is a statistical challenge. Uh, I think a lot of people have heard the phrase overfitting. uh, And it's a very real danger when you're operating in a realm of little to no data, which is often what the Oscars are. You know, the number of things that are lined up as potential predictors for best makeup and hairstyling at the Oscars, there's just not a lot there. And even when you're talking about best picture, yes, there are more, but we've still got far less data in this domain than in many, many other domains that people try to predict, whether it's politics or the weather or the stock market. And even those are really hard to predict with even more data. So I do my best with the Oscars and it's why I wouldn't expect to go perfect in any year, but I work with the data I have. So do you find that certain categories say best picture or best director? Are you better at predicting those and say a more obscure category like best makeup, best costume design, things like that? Yes, in general, I'd say there's really two things that make certain categories harder on average. One is, right, less data is generally harder to make predictions in. The other, though, is if there's any weirdness, if you will, to either the Oscar category itself or to the precursor awards. You know, rules change and systems change for deciding these things. So the Oscars, you know, they switched to a preferential ballot just for best picture a decade ago. That's a rule change that can lead to different types of results. You also can have these changes. They're they're not as noticed by many people, but the Guild Awards can slightly change their membership requirements, how they choose their nominees, how they choose their winners, different balloting systems. All of these things can have impacts on is the relationship between this previous award and the Oscars the same as it was in the past. Uh, And anytime that relationship changes, that's going to lead to a less accurate model. This year is particularly fascinating because all sorts of things change. Streaming movies are now eligible. There's now two more months worth of movies that can be included going through January and February. Best sound editing and sound mixing have been merged into one category and so on. So anytime anybody decides to change anything, it gently messes with the data a little. And it's my job to try to make predictions anyway and see where they fall. Yeah. Rule changes. That also rings a bell with baseball too. Yes. People hate rule changes in baseball. And especially this year, there's more and more rule changes. So again, the, the overlap between sports analytics, Oscar analytics is, is very, very clear. But yeah, so you know, kind of getting into Oscar Sunday is, is coming up. So for this year, what are the three biggest, for just casual Oscar fans, so people can know, obviously movies have been out of the mainstream a little bit with COVID, but for this year, what are the three biggest Oscar best picture front runners? And I don't know if you have 
the probabilities on hand, or if you haven't run the model yet to kind of give probabilities for the top three front runners. So I don't have the final numbers quite yet. It's pretty clear that Nomadland, uh, though, is going to be the most likely nominee, according to the model. It's just swept through everything. It just won the BAFTAs recently. And before that, it won the Directors Guild. It also won the Producers Guild and the Golden Globe for Best Drama and so forth and so on. So that's pretty likely going to be your top pick. But there are certainly others that are going to have a shot to pull off the upset. So Trial of the Chicago 7 won the Screen Actors Guild Award for Best Ensemble, which has on occasion been a, a really good harbinger of a potential upset down the line. Spotlight won that and then went on to beat The Revenant. Crash won that and went on to beat Brokeback Mountain. Also, Moonlight was at least up for that and La La Land wasn't. And then Moonlight upset La La Land. And so sometimes the Screen Actors Guild is something that doesn't get quite enough attention in this. Uh, and then I would say Minari as well uh, has been you know, winning a number of other awards. It also wasn't eligible for the top Golden Globe honors. It was deemed to be only eligible in the foreign language film category, and it won that. So there is a chance that you know one of those could be able to sneak in. The other one that would come to mind would be Promising Young Woman. Uh, it got a Best Directing nomination. It got a Best Film Editing nomination, and those tend to be reasonably correlated with Best Picture wins. So you can't rule those out. I would be very surprised if the envelope is opened at this point and it's The Father, Sound of Metal, Jews and the Black Messiah. Mank does have the most nominations. I would still consider it to be a real surprise if that were to go on to win as well. You started talking about some historical Oscar upsets like Moonlight over La La Land. So because you have the math and you can kind of quantify what an upset is, you know, in sports, you can quantify Dodgers had a 70% chance to win and they lost. That's kind of an upset. But for the Oscars, what are the three biggest Oscar best picture upsets in history? Uh, so I was actually just looking at this recently for an article and going back as far as we have enough data to answer this, which by my model would be 1948. It would be Crash Over Brokeback Mountain, Moonlight Over La La Land, and going way back to 1951, An American in Paris Over A Place in the Sun. Those would come out as the three most unlikely. Now, there are some in the early years where you could argue maybe they were even bigger upsets. Grand Hotel won Best Picture on its only nomination at the Fifth Academy Awards, which is a pretty strange result. The very first Oscars, uh, we're going really back here, it was Wings that won Best Picture, even though Seventh Heaven clearly had a, a number of stronger nominations in other categories. But it's pretty hard to make predictions on the first of anything. So I would stick with those first three as the biggest upsets. Moving away from the math a little, people are always looking for movie recommendations. And obviously you've run the gamut. You've seen all these movies, these classic movies in history. So for our listeners looking for movie recommendations, what are your three favorite movies of all time? I've got a pretty weird list. So number one is Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, Black and White, 1939, Jimmy Stewart. Very inspiring story. Highly recommend it. Perennially relevant from a political point of view. I'm a big fan of the Back to the Future trilogy, especially part two. I think it's one of the most brilliantly written stories I've ever seen on screen, uh, especially if you're going to watch it, watching it all in a, a straight shot, all three movies, I think is the way to go. And Titanic, I'm a big fan of that one as well. Just from a, a technical standpoint, I think that what they were able to do and how real it all looks, uh, I think is extremely impressive. There's so many others. I, I could go on and on with that. Yeah, that's interesting. And then we, you talked about Moneyball at the beginning. I'm curious, 
what are your thoughts on, obviously it's a great movie or maybe you disagree, but um, what are your thoughts on Moneyball? Is it accurate? Not accurate? Maybe it's outdated. What are your, what are your thoughts on that movie? So it's funny. I, I love the movie Moneyball. That was actually one of the best picture nominees the very first year that I predicted the Oscar. Uh, it lost to the artist, which I also thought was terrific, but I thought Moneyball was great. What's funny is that I think there's a real tendency that people have when Hollywood makes a movie of their industry to complain about how inaccurate it is. And perhaps that's often the case, but I feel like with Moneyball, sure, there's some things that they dramatize, but I think for where analytics was in 2002 and what it all looked like, my understanding is that all things considered by Hollywood standards, it's actually reasonably accurate. I don't have too much of an issue with how it's portrayed or how analytics is used in baseball. I do think that it's a lot more friendly now. It's not that the scouts and analysts are really at war with each other. Like, they might have been at that time, but I can't fault the movie for that because the movie is portraying what it looked like 20 years ago. And I wasn't in the industry at the time, but it's very possible that that's exactly what it was like. Yeah. I think Jonah Hill's character is supposed to be portraying Paul D. Podesta, who right. was a Harvard alum. I don't think he was an HSAC alum and I don't think it was around back then, but yeah, I think, yeah, we did a pretty deep dive into Oscars, into baseball analytics. Last question, kind of broad. But I think, you know, we have a lot of listeners who are interested in potentially going into a career in in sports analytics. But on the other hand, these jobs are becoming harder and harder to find. There's always a limited amount of teams hiring 30 or so within a given sport. Obviously, there's outside firms, but these jobs are still really, really competitive. So kind of a two-pronged question is, what advice would you give to people looking to go into a career in sports analytics, kind of a high school, college, or recent graduate age? And also, if you could go back and give yourself, what advice would you give your high school or college self? So kind of a two-prong related question. Interesting. I can answer the latter part first. I feel very, very fortunate to be where I am today. And so I don't know that I would really want to start messing with time. If Back to the Future taught me anything, it's to leave well enough alone when it comes to time travel. So on that, I, I feel that it's not that I was perfectly prepared in every way because I learned an enormous amount with the Dodgers and I'm still learning an enormous amount now with the Mets. It's more that I overall am very happy with how things wound up. And so I don't know that I want to change too much in terms of my path to getting here. In terms of advice for others who are interested in this as a profession, there's no doubt that what you said is completely right, that it's hard. We unfortunately have to turn away many very qualified applicants because there's just only so many spots and there's a whole lot of people who are extremely talented who are interested in working in this industry. But that said, when I'm interviewing people, it's not meant to be some kind of a secret or like a game or or like a trick question. It's pretty straightforward what we're looking for. We're looking generally for four things, which is baseball acumen, statistical skills, coding abilities. And is this person you know, do they have the soft skills? So friendly and teamwork oriented and seems like the sort of person everyone else gets along with and they are a good listener and also a good communicator and, you know, those kinds of things. So it's hard to pinpoint the perfect resume in any of them because some candidates come in stronger in one than others, but getting involved on the baseball side can look like being a player, can look like helping out with a school's team, a high school or a coach's team. It can Uh, look like getting some scouting opportunities or writing your own scouting reports online. It can look like watching a lot of games and reading a lot of fan graphs and MLB trade rumors. Getting involved on the statistical side often comes from the classroom. 
a lot of times we see students who have more quantitative majors, statistics, applied math, computer science, math, physics, econ, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, it doesn't have to, though. Some people go online to resources, some of which are free and also really good. They can help learn data analytics. There are books out there that are focused on this as well. And that relates to the coding part as well, often through the classroom, but not necessarily. There's also really good online resources that can help people learn how to code if it's something they're interested in. In terms of the languages, SQL is something that is a must. That's how people tend to pull data from databases. Many, many teams operate in either Python or R from a data science perspective, plus a number of other languages for people that are more interested in being developers that want to build websites and apps that comes with understanding HTML and CSS and JavaScript and all sorts of other related languages and libraries. The last part of those four, so baseball stats coding and general demeanor, that, that's not something that can be learned in a classroom. But having had work experience or to be able to know how to get along well with others in a professional environment or having had teaching experience to be able to effectively communicate one's ideas or having had to defend a thesis or defend a dissertation to be able to present something that is more quantitative to a wider audience. There's all sorts of ways that people can get those kinds of soft skills in the classroom, out of the classroom, in work settings, in life, such that I think sometimes that's almost half learned and half innate to who the person is. And so it's hard to say that this is the magic formula for getting a job in sports. And I only say that because, again, there's just so many talented people, which I guess is a great problem for us to have from the team side, but I understand can be extremely frustrating for new applicants. There are people that are fantastic in all four of these regards, and it does take them sometimes a number of applications to be able to find the team that has an opening. And that's not because of any fault of their own. It might just be that the team had nobody leave that year. So maybe there are no new desks available for that person, or no budget space available for that person. And that's a shame. But it's something that as teams are growing and as analytics is growing throughout sports, there are now really 120-something professional teams in America that are all looking for this kind of thing. And so hopefully that leads to an improvement in terms of the kinds of opportunities that are available. Yeah, I think you put it perfectly. The way I see it is, you know, you said like the four tools, being an analytics person, the, the knowledge of the sport, the statistics background, the coding, and then just like the personality and things like that. Kind of like baseball, having a five-tool player, it's like the four tools of an analytics person. And so many talented people in baseball busting in the minors, but when you really make it to the majors or you make it and your hard work pays off working for an organization, then it's truly, truly rewarding. Yeah. Obviously you're an ultimate four tool analytics person, now the director of. I don't know. I try to be, but it's hard. Yeah. I think that's a perfect place to wrap it up. Thank you very much, Ben, for joining the podcast. This was a great first guest interview to have. I want to wish you the best of luck this weekend with your Oscar predictions. You should check out all of Ben's articles in the lead up to the Oscars in The Hollywood Reporter. Find his book, Oscar Metrics, The Math Behind Hollywood's Biggest Night on Amazon, and follow him on Twitter at Ben's Oscar Math for live updates throughout the ceremony to see the math behind what's happening and some super awesome Oscar fun facts. Also, Ben, I want to wish you best of luck this year in the 2021 season. As a Mets fan myself, I'm actually wearing a Mets shirt right now. I'm very excited for this year. So, Thanks for joining me, Ben. Good luck and go Mets. Thank you so much. And if I can add on your end, I've also been listening to a few of the episodes of the HSAC podcast and I've been thoroughly enjoying it. Uh, and so really glad that you and the rest of the group have started this podcast. I think it's a great addition to HSAC. I myself am an alum of the club. And so that's always fun to see that it's not only continuing, but thriving. And so 
keep up the good work and we'll be listening. Thanks, Ben. Again, thanks for listening to this episode of the HSAC podcast. We hope you enjoyed our first guest interview with Ben Zosmer. As always, you can find us on our blog at harvardsportsanalysis.org or follow us on Twitter at Harvard underscore sports. See you on the next episode.